0: Welcome to Failed Architecture Breeze Blocks, where our editors share their thoughts on works in progress, urgent matters, and current happenings in architecture and spatial politics. My name is Charlie Clemos, editor on Failed Architecture's Amsterdam team, and this episode is the first of a two-part interview with Marissa Courtright, author of the Failed Architecture article Death to the Calling, and more recently, Can this be? Surely this cannot be. A book composed of three essays related to the subject of architects organising in Europe. It's been one of my favourite and most useful reads this year and I'd really recommend getting a copy. For real, uh, Morris is not paying me to say this. Just a quick reminder that Feld Architecture is and always has been running on fumes, which is to say most of what the editors do is voluntary and we don't have a great deal of funds. We know times are difficult, but if you can spare some money to support independent architectural criticism, then please head to the donate page on our site. You might also want to know why we've been a bit quiet with articles lately. It's partly to do with the related problem of capacity, but also because we've been busy turning our three current special series into print versions. So stay tuned for that. Also, last thing, we recently set up a discord server, an invite link to which you can find in the show notes. There, you can discuss all things failed architecture and speak directly to us editors. We're the ones whose names are in red. Anyway, enough housekeeping. In this first part of my conversation with Marissa, we speak about our shared position as non-architects working in architecture. Then we go on to talk about the function of certain key words in entrenching existing power dynamics in the architectural practice. But first, we start by talking about the content of the book's three essays, and particularly the second essay on the definition of Europe, and its historic role in facilitating inequities, both in the architecture industry and the world at large. Here's Marissa starting to talk about the book's structure in the preamble just before I ask my first question.
1: The book does jump around a good bit. I have been reflecting now that it's over with and published six months on, like, gosh, what was I doing? I don't really know.
0: Well, yeah, tell me about that. Was the process kind of like trying to get to grips with some of the various like strands that you had noticed in the thematic universe that this subject falls within?
1: Yes. And this was an unwise decision to try to bring together those threads into my Gesamtkunstwerk or whatever, my total art of all of the things I was concerned about in architecture, which is on the one hand, the most... The most straightforward part, which is this whole section on the architectural worker, who are they, you know, who who might we include in that group? Why are we calling them an architectural worker? Because that was an extension of the failed architecture piece that I originally was discussing the need for that, that term in. And then bringing in this second essay on Europe, that was the wild card because I am not a historian of let's say the formation of Europe throughout the centuries, nor the contemporary development of the European Union. And I think I set that up in such a way as to say, look, I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who is realizing it, that that Europe poses this kind of material problem or at least certain regulations and customs of the European Union as it as it exists today is a problem for architectural workers based on what I've seen in my workplace. And I went from there all the way to uh, Lefebvre, Walter <laughs> Rodney, Maria Todorova. So I was trying to bring together both this initial issue of why are there so many Southern Europeans cycling in and out of big architecture companies in Northern Europe to what does it mean to be in Croatia, a relatively new country, we might say, on the edge of Europe and in this region of the Balkans, which has historically been this kind of, let's say, uh, a tug of war <laughs> for for whether it's part of Europe or whether it's Ottoman uh, in, in some respects. But it's, I think, important to think also about Croatia as one of the countries who provided the so-called Gastarbeiten or guest workers to Germany. There were a number of these kinds of guest worker programs during the 60s and 70s in countries in the north of Europe, where workers from the south of Europe would migrate ostensibly as guest workers or temporary workers to these countries in the north of Europe, earn far better salaries than they would ever have been able to in their original countries and then they were largely expected to leave and go home once their stay was was no longer welcome by their employers in the north of Europe. And this has created, obviously, kind of interesting immigration dynamics over time as guest workers have settled in in countries in the north of Europe. But we might think of that program as in many ways informing how migration works in Europe now. It looks a little bit different because of the so-called freedom of movement that the European Union grants to European nationals who now have the right, you know, without any restrictions on how long they live in another country in the EU to move at will. But there are still restrictions, of course, on people who are outside of the EU. So instead of this north-south divide in the same way, which which we see, but in a different way, we see a kind of east-west divide of countries who are not in the European Union, but are from southeast Europe, like Serbia or Belarus further north. The point being that there are always going to be workers who need to migrate into the European Union, into Europe, into these quote-unquote European countries to find work, and who are at a disadvantage for that reason, and who are economic migrants at the behest of a very violent and all the more sophisticated form of of immigration control now more than ever. And of course, one of the dynamics that I track in the book is immigration from the Middle East and from Africa and the ways in which the EU has set up the so-called Fortress Europe to expand the border of the European Union outside of the countries that comprise it and into the countries where immigrants or would-be immigrants would be coming from. And this is really disconcerting for European nationals because it removes from their consciousness any awareness of this border of Europe. The freedom of movement means that they don't experience it. And the fact that the border has been... Displaced to outside of Europe means they don't see it at all. They don't see the deaths in the Mediterranean. They don't see uh, police beating people in the forest, right? They don't see the violence that that the European border entails. And while that might not seem like a specifically architectural problem, there is still this insistence, I think, in architecture as well as other kind of, let's say, middle class or so-called. Wealthy professions or industries that that Europe is this unbridled good, it's something that we have to we have to be so thankful for because it's offered so many opportunities for us and I think we really have to be careful about what we accept when we think about Europe in such uh, unqualified way and so i I just thought to bring together a whole bunch of things that I had been concerned about, ending perhaps more. Uh, relevantly with this idea of organizing, which we've seen a lot of good examples of um, in, different, in different cases uh, across Europe. And I thought that would really be the, the thing that would be useful for people to see, um, that there are a lot of different things going on and that we might be learning from other contexts. It doesn't just need to be people in the UK learning from other people in the UK, although obviously that's happening and that's a good thing, but they also need to know what's going on in Spain, in um, Croatia, for that matter, and, and from all the ends of, of Europe to connect. And that was, I suppose, my, my rationale for bringing the Europe part into this idea of architectural workers organizing. That there needs to be some kind of geographical basis because there is this, let's say, geopolitical force that governs everything that's happening here.
0: Yeah, I mean, no, but the, uh, the whole essay on Europe is, I, I yeah, you... you saying it's a wild card. Wild card. I mean, it, you, you're also at the same time saying, you know, there's obvious reasons why it's useful, but I, I have to say it, it it's the main thing I found illuminating about the book was that chapter in terms of situating things in bigger questions going on right now. I guess I was thinking about the workers inquiry that we've been pursuing and how quite a lot of the time it comes up that the main people being exploited in the netherlands are people either coming from southern or eastern europe or from outside of europe but nonetheless the geographical scale on which these sorts of things are happening is is within these this 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 zone um which is actually a kind of historic in a way like not an aberration but like um it is it is an aberration as as like continents go because it doesn't really exist from from the perspective of all other continents it doesn't have like a geographical line that says this is the end right like and i think that's something that people forget quite quite quickly and um not enough people know about and realize that actually the struggle kind of has to happen perhaps on that kind of scale um Um, I, it would be quite nice to sort of talk a little bit more about the original article. I guess like the way that we came in contact with you was this article, death to the cooling. And, um, that seems to be the kind of, to a certain extent, the jumping off point of the book. I'm wondering, I guess, as a start point, what your, uh, yeah, like what your own position is in relation to the field how that affected you observing this, because obviously you're an architectural worker, but you're not an architect, right? And, or you've been an architectural worker but not an architect and it gives you this i feel very similar in a sense like i'm an architectural worker to the extent that i'm a teacher of architectural theory and i've worked in practices as like a copywriter and i've written about architecture but i'm not no way at all interested in it It as a calling i'm not i'm, f- I'm fascinated by the subject but yeah, I, I'm just interested to like, if you wanted to talk a little bit about like, yeah, how your own position informed your entry point into kind of theorizing this, uh, this subject, I guess. Certainly
1: when I wrote the original article, I was several years into working at an architectural company and was starting to understand what that meant for me as someone who wasn't an architect. I found it very strange particularly in an architectural company that really traded in these maxims of belonging, of a certain kind of high-end design that attracted only the very best from the best schools and who were really in it for all that it took, who would be willing to Engage in the kind of unpaid overtime that that we know is so rampant in the profession, and then sitting on the other side of that, watching that happen, but not being subject to it to the same extent in the sense of not needing to work on the weekends, for instance, or feeling as though I could say no, I'm not going to do that because I wasn't working on a project team, but on a different kind of team. That really struck me the wrong way. I, I felt. I felt really bad for my coworkers. To put it in, in the most basic of terms, I thought this isn't right, and of course, it just is that way. But then I it got me thinking: what, what, where do we go from here? Because I'm not the only, only one who feels this way. I know that the architects know that this isn't right, but we need to we need to develop some kind of way to talk about it. And, and one of the ways that I started to think about it for myself was this differentiation between architectural workers who are subject to the calling, namely architects, and then those of us who are just working there because that's the job that we're qualified for and that we happen to get and we're happy to take home a paycheck every month for. The fact that that starts in the architectural office, I think I was still dealing with a lot of the minute hangups I had with the particular company that I was working for. I tried to make some certain digs or some certain critiques of how that kind of office operates, but now that I'm not working in that company, I've started to think of that dynamic of architectural workers, both the ones subject to the calling and those who are not in a broader scheme of how does this function kind of across the industry? How does this function not only in the context of private architectural companies and particularly those kinds of architectural companies that are located in places like the Netherlands? which have, we might say, a larger number of architectural workers who are not architects, right? They're bigger companies, they export architecture around the world, and so they need marketing teams, they need people who do copywriting, they need, I don't know, lawyers, accountants, to the extent that that smaller, smaller offices um, simply don't have the financial resources for, right? So it would be architects trying to cover those kinds of things themselves and holding within themselves this dual role of, well, on the one hand, you're an architect who's called to do the architectural part of it, but on the other hand, you have to do business development because you can't afford anyone else to do it. So I think it's interesting to think about this dynamic kind of across Europe again, but let me come back to the original article maybe and, and how it gets to the book, which I think is the article was, was my particular concern in 2019, what has this experience been like for me? And then I thought, well, really, I need to try to expand this and think about how other architectural workers are are experiencing this dynamic, but also where they think it should be going.
0: On this, I just, from a personal perspective, like, I haven't had that much experience doing this because of, of the, like, nature of the work culture. My one time really kind of being ensconced in an office, I was, yeah, I was really struck by the... The, the expectations placed on me, even though I wasn't an architect, the the, the real dissonance in terms of I, I've I've never known someone to just sort of so blithely expect submission to to sort of like a work rate that involves weekends, involves just staying the length of time that it takes for a job to be finished, and yeah, really the kind of taken for granted attitude of the people in management positions to the idea that like it's not even a question it's not open for debate like yeah like we need to finish this now so you're staying like it's sort of almost unconscionable the idea that you'd be like i have something to do i'm going right like it 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 is funny that you know it, it does come up against reality in all sorts of situations you know it does like, you know, I'm, I'm an outsider. I haven't gone through the educational churn of like, you know, yeah, you should stay up until this amount of time. You should love your boss. You should feel like you're part of a family. This is this kind of hero's quest to use your phrase at the beginning of the article. Like, it's not for me. I was just a journeyman writer. Like I I just wanted to get a bit of money. And I remember the negotiations. I, I acted how I normally act in a a negotiation for what my rate would be Uh, i say like this is my rate and i'm not going lower (laughs) like it was just really like they couldn't they get used to the idea that the that people would submit i I, you know i don't i'm not a i don't play hardball anyway i don't know if that was the same sort of you know you felt that same weird dissonance i suppose of of like i yeah i'm not gonna do that
1: most definitely and i i do think you're right that that the submission or at least the acceptance of that kind of work schedule is inculcated in architectural education and that architectural companies really benefit from not having to, let's say, do the work of getting their employees to submit to it because they're already used to it, they accept it as, as a given. But I do think they find certain ways, rhetorical, ways to encourage it, to continue to normalize it, particularly as younger employees who are pushed the hardest because they are the most precarious, maybe because they have temporary contracts and they don't want to be seen as slacking because they would be the first to be let go. Their employers find certain phrases or activities that try to encourage the sense of belonging. And it's so difficult to pinpoint where that goes from being something potentially good, because it might give someone who has moved to a new city some sense of uh, a place that they're doing an internship, they don't know anyone, they need to feel like they belong. But it can can very quickly become a negative impact of, well, this is the only place I have, and so I'm going to spend all of my time here. We hear that from particularly small companies, but also large ones who refer to themselves as families. How could you leave your family? There was one woman I interviewed in my book who said, well, I know the only reason my manager is saying that we're a family and that they care so that they can call me up on Sunday and have me come into the office. It's harder to turn that down once there's this expectation of a close, intimate relation with
0: someone like that. I was thinking, I mean, this does kind of like feed into the next thing I want us to talk about, I've been really into the keywords of capitalism, John Patrick Leary's book for a while now is I find quite a useful way of conceptualizing the way that uh, architecture speak sort of unfolds, not just in the terms of the workplace, but the way that architecture practices speak about what they do what kind of projects they're involved in he he talks about sustainability for instance he he has a great chapter on design he talks about like creative terms that obscure the worker boss relationship to turn wherever you are into A creative experience which obviously like works differently in different places like you see it working very badly in the uh, hospitality industry trying to turn these sorts of things into a kind of creative thing hasn't worked as well but in architecture it's sort of like ready-made in a sense that the educational system indeed and the way that the whole profession sells itself to clients to the sort of other industries that it works for is very much left side of the brain thinking is about like we can do these things that go beyond automation and 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 are sort of a a bit more ineffable hard to pin down but like he talks about the way that certain words engender these kinds of relationships so indeed yeah talking about family i don't know like if you want to talk a little bit about that yourself yeah
1: i think i think maybe the trickiest one of them all and that i'll i'll discuss off the off the top because No one has really managed to crack this. I don't know if John Patrick Leary picks it up because it does seem kind of particular to an architectural or urban design or even engineering context, but it's the figure of the user. Who is this all for, right? I rely in my book on, unfortunately, Henri Lefebvre to talk about the user. Who is this group of people that we're supposed to be working for? And it's Obviously not the same person or group of people as the client or the financer of the project or the government for that matter. But I think that many of the people I spoke to were coming back to this idea of this disconnect in the language that they were able to use as people trained as architects and the people they were meant to be designing for, ostensibly.
0: Something you mention in the book, uh, you quote, Sasha costanza who notes that designers tend to unconsciously default to imagined users whose experiences are similar to their own. This means that users are most often assumed to be members of the dominant and hence unmarked group.
1: Yeah, not only is there a lack of a good term to use for them, whoever they are, but there also is a lack of a shared vocabulary that might bridge people in the design profession, let's say architectural workers and their ostensible subjects. Again, I'm lacking the words myself, so I'm kind of dancing around deciding on one, but we could say user as the the stand-in or the placeholder. And then where we go from that that lack both of an idea of who we're supposed to be working for and of how we're supposed to be communicating with them is that we we lack the capacity to understand maybe the the purpose of it or or how in combination with other consultants it might be for just talking about architecture, how are architects supposed to be working with other kinds of people to develop these projects, but how are they supposed to be involved in broader societal organizations to bring about things that are that are good for people in the most basic level? I mean, we're talking about really, really basic things. So this this lack of vocabulary in a way is almost more damning than the words themselves, which are fleeting. On the other hand, And to say about fleeting vocabulary, it's that there are certain phrases that cycle in and out of, let's say, relevance or usefulness for people. I would say amongst them are diversity, inclusion, maybe even equality. We can add this idea of DEI, diversity, equality, and inclusion, I think it is that that is now a professional capacity unto itself. These words are all around us all of the time. We have to be really, really careful about what they're doing and whether they are acting in a way that is helpful for us might, again, dance around defining us because I think that that can be itself appropriated. But let's let's say that there's on the one hand a lack of certain kind of terminology and on the other, this very slippery terminology. And what I try to argue for in some respects is landing on a kind of vocabulary that cannot be co-opted, that is not so slippery. For instance, abolition organizers have been really good about this. In the summer of 2020, in the Black Lives Matter protests following the murder of George Floyd, there was a strong insistence on the demand to defund the police. And defunding the police is not a phrase that can be co-opted, and indeed it has not. But reforming the police, refining these other kinds of let's say lesser versions of, of change, those certainly have been utilized in a number of different ways. And I think there's something that architectural workers can really learn from this rhetorical lesson of how do you arrive at a demand that cannot be co-opted? How do you arrive at certain kinds of language that cannot be co-opted? So I'll give one more example, returning to diversity, for instance. Instead of referring to diversity, how do we talk about anti-racism? How do we talk about anti-sexism? how do we talk about the particular forms of discrimination that a word like diversity would be covering up?
0: Okay, that's it for the first part. Stay tuned for the second part, which I'll put out next week, where we go on to discuss the progress, prospects, and also obstacles in organizing architectural workers into unions.